This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder from bbc science focus this is instant genius a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form I'm Noah Leach, news editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. If I say nuclear waste, what do you think of? For many people, the term brings up apocalyptic wastelands, for some a cartoonish bright green sludge and three-eyed fish. But what actually is nuclear waste? Where does it go? Is it safe for people and the environment? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Dr. Lewis Blackburn, nuclear materials scientist at the University of Sheffield. He talks about the incredible and urgent research going into sealing, burying and locking away nuclear waste, the relationship between nuclear waste and space, and why we can't just fire off our nuclear waste on a rocket, and the vast timescales when it comes to nuclear waste that go well beyond human lives, including the people working on it. So Lewis, what is nuclear waste? So a lot of people probably have this idea in their head that nuclear waste is a green goo that sits in large barrels that sort of sit in power plants. And that isn't necessarily true. So nuclear waste actually encompasses a very wide variety of materials. It isn't one thing. There isn't such a thing as just a generic nuclear waste. So the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, generally classify nuclear waste into sort of four different categories. And these are determined by what we call half-life. So essentially how long the material will be radioactive for uh, and radioactivity. So how radioactive a certain uh, isotope that's contained within the waste is. So these, uh, these categories are very low-level waste, low-level waste, intermediate level waste and then high level waste so high level nuclear waste is the material that really needs to be isolated from the environment for a very long time and this is generally when we talk about high level waste what we're talking about is either spent nuclear fuel so that is nuclear fuel that's been sat in a reactor 
undergoing fission to generate electricity for several years in some instances. This material is then removed from a reactor where it can either be stored for a very long time and then disposed of as waste, or it can be what we call reprocessed. So the reprocessing of spent nuclear fuel is a very important process because what we can do is take the reusable uranium and the plutonium that's formed in the spent nuclear fuel. These can essentially be chemically recovered by using a series of aqueous chemical extractions. After we reprocess the fuel, what we're left with is all the nasties that are left at the end. That's referred to as the high-level waste. And what happens in most countries where they do these processes is that that is then converted into a glass. All the leftover products, so a lot of long-lived radioisotopes, so things like technetium, trace amounts of things like curium and americium, and then a lot of activation products and corrosion products, a lot of chromium and iron and nickel. These are essentially contained in in sort of a, a slurry of nitric acid. So that, that type of nuclear waste looks like your sort of stereotypical cartoon image of nuclear waste, sort of like a, a green goo type material. What happens is this is dried. Obviously, each each step I talk about here is quite a, a long process, so I'm kind of giving you the, the, the main points. The, the material is dried, and then it's poured into big containers, these big melters, and glass-forming additives are added. So things like silica, boron, aluminium, etc. These all, when melted together, will make the nuclear waste, so the high-level nuclear waste, each of those atoms will basically incorporate into the structure of the glass. And the reason we use glass is that glass is a very durable material. So there are several analogues that exist in nature, and there are you know, there's thousands of years of, of human history that tells us that when we make glass, so when we melt things and quench them, cool them really quickly to form glasses, that they can actually sit in the environment and be quite stable for very long periods of time. So this gives us confidence that when we put nuclear waste into glass, it will last long enough in the environment such that by the time it starts to dissolve, all the radioactivity should have essentially decayed away. So when we talk about intermediate level waste, we're talking about materials that aren't necessarily the most damaging in terms of their what would be their environmental impact, but there is there's quite a lot of it and some of it is fairly radioactive. So intermediate level waste looks more like things more like irradiated graphite that's been sat in the reactors, the metal cladding that comes off of the fuel that's sheared off. So again, very heterogeneous. It isn't necessarily one thing. It, it could be sort of contaminated bricks. It could be contaminated, say, graphite. Uh, so the, the swarf, the, the metal cladding that comes off of the, the tubes that hold the fuel pins, things like that. And the sort of baseline treatment for a lot of those materials is to essentially grout them in cement, pour them into giant drums, sort of 200 litre drums at a time. And these are basically added with different cementitious grouts. As a reason for that is that that's suitable enough to contain the waste and condition it for the time periods that are needed. We know quite a lot about cement chemistry. Cement is generally quite cheap material to produce. Again, humans are very good at producing cement. So a lot of the research that goes on at the moment is studying the interactions of, for example, fuel cladding materials with cement. And what we know is that the mobility of, of things like you know trace amounts of uranium in cement is it's enough to contain them. 
Then we come to things like low-level nuclear waste and very low-level nuclear waste. So these are materials that are generally very difficult to categorise because they could be comprised of almost anything. It, it could be generally things like gloves and you know lab equipment, glassware, anything that has become in contact with trace amounts of radioactive material that puts it above the threshold for being classed as radioactive. So that, that's kind of the, the broad level description of what nuclear waste is. Nuclear waste isn't necessarily one thing at all. It could be a wide spectrum of materials, all of which need some kind of conditioning or some kind of stabilisation, what we call immobilisation, before they are disposed of. The green slurry that is turned into glass, are we talking about sheets of glass or pellets? What can we imagine when we're thinking of what's actually going to be disposed of? So we're talking about sort of large canisters, uh, sort of cylindrical, basically large cylindrical blocks of glass that are contained within sort of stainless steel containers. So they're they're poured in as a as a as a melt. So so they're not they're not pellet sized. These glass containers are more on the order of probably around the same size to maybe a little bit smaller than your average garden waste bin. So the steps that you've talked about there, you've mentioned that they these things take a lot of time. And obviously with with nuclear waste, we are talking a huge half-life, as you call it. So could you explain what a half-life actually is and how long into the future these materials are going to take to decay? So the, the concept of half-life is how long it takes half of the radioactivity, associated radioactivity of a material to, to decay. So there are three modes, generally what with three modes of radioactive decay, and these are alpha, beta, and gamma decay. It's important to remember that when we're talking about something like high-level nuclear waste, you're talking about most elements in the periodic table are in this mixture. And each of those elements have stable isotopes, that they have configurations of protons and neutrons and electrons that are stable, which means they don't undergo radioactive decay. Once they've been through a nuclear reactor and they've been baked in neutrons for a very long time, a lot of those elements will have formed unstable configurations of electrons, protons and neutrons. What that means is they basically have excess energy that they need to get rid of. And the way that atoms do this is by radioactive decay. So, for example, if we have something like uranium, which is a heavy, the heavier elements generally tend to undergo alpha decay. An isotope of uranium, for example, uranium-238, will generally, or uranium-235, for example, what will happen is it will let go of alpha particles. And these then basically act as the, the way that energy is released from the atom. So, as I said, most elements in the periodic table are in, in the, the high-level nuclear waste, and a lot of those elements will have unstable configurations of electrons, neutrons, and protons, which means that it's very difficult to say how long it needs to last because the, the varying proportions of those elements will, will be different. However, we're talking on the order of a, around 100,000 years for all of the radioactivity or most of the radioactivity to have reached a safe level. And the sort of safe level that we're referring to is the sort of philosophy behind this is the uranium from which the original fuel was derived has an associated background activity. We're, we're trying to get to the level where once the waste is completely sort of 
disintegrated or, you know, once the waste is compromised in a disposal environment, the radioactivity associated with it will be of the same order of magnitude as the original uranium which was used to produce the fuel. That's kind of like the life cycle analysis of this material. But yeah, we're talking on the order of 100,000 years to a million years in the future, which is obviously an extremely long and difficult amount of time to really prepare for because we don't know what society will look like. We don't know what the Earth will look like. In 100,000 years, will humans still be around? You know, what, what, is the, what are the difficulties in the long term with planning for disposal of nuclear fuels and nuclear waste this far into the future? There are many difficulties associated with that. So for context, for, for listeners, the oldest pyramid is about 4,500 years old. So we're talking facilities that need to be, will need to be the longest serving human structures ever by a really long way. So what are those those risks and, and challenges? What are you having to take into account when these facilities are being designed? So when we're talking about a facility, what we're generally referring to is what's called a geological disposal facility. So geological disposal is the preferred method of long-term isolation of nuclear waste from the environment in every country that has nuclear waste. The sort of international consensus is that this is the most scientifically mature and feasible route to long-term environmental isolation. And what we mean by environmental isolation is we can put this material essentially in a specially engineered underground facility where it will remain undisturbed for, again, periods of 100,000 years or longer. So there are many, many different engineering and scientific challenges with that, as you can imagine. Foremost is, you know, how do we choose where this site will be? How do we choose how deep it will be? What waste needs to go in there? What waste doesn't need to go in there? You know, you've got to think about cost, uh, manpower, time. It could take 50 to 100 years to build a site like this. It will, without a doubt, be the largest infrastructure project that the UK will undertake for a very long time, if not if not the largest infrastructure project, simply because there are so many variables and the end goal is so important. We can't get this wrong. And there is a large amount of industrial and academic research that's going on right now to look at every single aspect of designing this facility. So the research, for example, that we do at the University of Sheffield is, if you think of this as like a uh, as a timeline, the, the research we're doing is sort of right at the start. So how can we get the properties of the, the waste immobilization correct? So we're looking at things like designing sort of specialist glass compositions and special ceramic compositions that we can test in a laboratory and we can extrapolate out and say, we know that on a lab scale in a controlled environment, the material is so durable, you know, X durability. We can then extrapolate that out and say, knowing what we know about how nuclear waste evolves in the groundwater environment, this is how long into the future it will last. Obviously, there are things like the geological aspects. So we have to choose areas of rock that have got a very well-defined sort of structure and properties. We need to know about how water flows through the rocks the sort of hydraulic and sort of mechanical properties of all the surrounding bedrock, how averse are these areas to sort of climate change-driven catastrophes, you know, how likely are earthquakes. Um, There are many different geological aspects, and that's possibly the most important 
of all the aspects, you know, choosing an area, choosing a site that is, you know, sort of mechanically and hydraulically stable enough to handle a very large underground excavated project. And I suppose a lot of listeners will be thinking, well, what does this even look like? So what it kind of looks like as a concept at the moment is a surface site, probably a, a kilometre squared with like, you know, sort of surface buildings, access shafts down to a depth between 200 and 700 metres, and then essentially lots and lots of excavated vaults underground where there will be individually placed canisters of, for example, intermediate level waste or sort of cementitious drums. And then on the other side, there'll be sort of higher heat generating waste, so things like spent nuclear fuel or glass products that we talked about earlier. And then potentially even immobilized plutonium products as well. And again, these will all be individual sort of casks that will be sort of buried in specific vaults. And then in the long run, once all the waste has been placed, all the vaults will be backfilled with some kind of buffer material. So this could be something like a cement, or it could be something uh, such as a material called bentonite, which is kind of like a clay. These will all be backfilled. And then all the surface facilities will be backfilled to the top. And it's very likely that the surface facilities will then be sort of decommissioned and it will essentially be uh, sort of restored back to, you know, so it'll be like a plain site. There, there shouldn't really be anything there. There are philosophical arguments that happen a lot as to, you know, should we mark where this facility will be? Should we put signs saying stay away? How, you know, how do you communicate to... to any species that might be on the planet in 100,000 years, don't come here, don't dig here, because you, what you'll find is a, a large amount of highly radioactive material. Um, that's a question that I, I, I can't answer, and many people are still thinking about how do we mark a facility like this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. So we've been talking about underground facilities. That seems to be the kind of the way to do it. But what are some of the other ideas that humans have had so far in terms of getting rid of nuclear waste? Have any others been serious contenders? 
So for a while in the 70s and 80s, there was basically some dumping in the sea of some intermediate and low-level type waste materials. And this obviously was not a good or sustainable long-term option because although the sea and you know the, the Earth's oceans are extremely very, very large, having corroding containers of, of radioactive material at the bottom of the North Sea essentially is, is not a good idea. And this, you know, obviously received significant public backlash at the time. And, you know, it still is sort of a large issue. But, uh, you know, glad to say that direct disposal of sort of conditioned waste in the sea does not does not happen anymore. There have been some more extreme ideas that have been proposed. I suppose the most sort of popular one that people like to discuss is the idea of basically firing it into the sun or shooting it off into space. While in principle, you know, having waste not on the earth is sort of the best solution in a sense, because if it's not here, then we don't have to deal with it. Sending things off to space obviously requires significant propulsion in the form of like a rocket. And I think you know we're, we're all aware that one thing that rockets do fairly frequently is explode <laughs> on the launch pad. I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but you know I imagine it's a, a large enough risk that it, it should be not considered whatsoever. A large amount of rockets have exploded on, on a launch pad. And you know, reusable rocket technology and things like this, they are they are getting better, no doubt. If you look at sort of a track record in the last ten years compared to, you know, between the seventies, eighties and nineties, for example, of sort of space man, manned and unmanned space launches, no doubt we're getting better at building rockets and they are safer. And they explode far less frequently. But you can you can envisage a, envisage a scenario with you know a large payload of sort of radioactive waste sat on the top of a rocket. It explodes on the launch pad, and then what you have is all of those radioactive elements that we want to isolate from the environment, all the iodine and cesium and technetium and plutonium, all the things that are very dangerous to the environment and to humans. All this material would essentially be dispersed in the atmosphere and wind currents and you know sort of weather cycles would then carry that material all over and it would contaminate the wider environment whether this is by sort of settling down onto sort of soils and sort of integrating its way into the sort of food chain by being you know consumed by different animals and then you know sort of bioaccumulation whether it, you know contaminates water supplies you know gets into to drinking water things like that Th- these are all the things that we don't want to happen and this is why the geological disposal approach, whereby waste is conditioned appropriately in a, a suitable, what we call a waste form. So when we convert waste, exa- for example, if when we turn high-level nuclear waste into a glass, what we're doing is making what's called a waste form, and the glass is the waste form itself. So what we're trying to do is stop that happening. So we don't want things like... Take plutonium, for example. Plutonium-239 has a half-life, I think, of 24,000 years, an extremely long period of time. You know, plutonium is dangerous in wildlife sort of food chains. It's just generally bad for the environment. We don't want it to contaminate drinking water. We don't want it to sort of contaminate the atmosphere because it's radiotoxic, so it has an associated toxicity with it. So, you know, it could damage basically cells and life forms. It's obviously a highly controlled substance. You know, certain types of, of plutonium are fissile, which means that they're capable of sustaining a chain reaction, which essentially means that you know certain types of plutonium could be used to produce weapons in large enough quantities. So these are the considerations as to why 
we want to have all the waste contained in a stable matrix that can sit underground in a specially engineered facility for a period exceeding 100,000 years. And geological disposal is the only other way, to, the only feasible scientific way to do that at present. Now, whether in future, you know, far enough down the line, in things like space elevators become sort of feasible, whereby they design these large structures that can essentially act as, as, as an elevator shaft, you know. So if you basically don't have to put a propulsion, you don't have to put a rocket underneath nuclear waste to send it into space. Whether that would ever be a feasible option, I'm not sure. I, I, I've done some reading on this subject, and I know that to build something like a space elevator, the sort of technology needed to build one big enough to actually sort of ensure that anything that goes up, it would go out into sort of into space and not come back down. The materials that are needed are sort of like these copper or carbon nanotube materials, and they're extremely difficult to produce. And I think it's probably a bit of a pipe dream. We can't wait long enough for that to happen. You know, nuclear waste is a, a clear and present danger to society and the environment now. And the approach of kicking the can down the road, which is what's been done, you know, for the last sort of 50 or 60 years in, in not only this country and in most countries, you know, but especially in like the US and the UK, our nuclear programs in their infancy did not consider enough the long-term repercussions of generating large volumes of nuclear waste so now it's it's our time so it's you know this this current generation of scientists and engineers it's our responsibility now to, to clean this mess up essentially and to convince the public and the government that geological disposal of waste is a, a safe long-term viable option and a suitable strategy for turning you know take taking this highly active material and ensuring that it can't contaminate the, the land around us and can't basically pose a risk to wildlife and, and ecology in general. So where is our nuclear waste in the UK currently going then? The volumes of nuclear waste at present, that what, what's predicted to arise could essentially fill sort of like a Wembley Stadium sized volume. There was a lot of nuclear waste and there's a lot more future arisings that, that will be produced. The nuclear infrastructure in the UK is only set to expand so at, at present, I believe that there are 15 operational nuclear reactors. There are plans outlined to build more. So the Hinkley Point C reactor is well under construction and there will be likely quite a few more reactors that are produced. So at present, spent nuclear fuel, when it comes out of a reactor, is cooled, basically put into giant swimming pools essentially because it's really, really hot and it's really, really radioactive. So by putting it in a, in a cooling pond for a couple of years, you allow that initial residual heat to decay away and some of the radioactivity associated with the really short-lived sort of decay products that form, the, the front-end activity can decrease a little bit. And then what happens is all the spent fuel is basically packaged and sent to Sellafield, which is in Cumbria, in sort of north northwest of England. This is where the reprocessing happens. So this is where the spent fuel is dissolved and essentially turned into high-level waste. At present, generally, like a large amount of the, the nuclear material that's in this country is at the Sellafield site. The actual logistics of waste transport and waste transfer are not something that I sort of know too much about. I imagine some of the actual practices are, you know, for security reasons, probably not widely available. 
but generally most of the high level waste is exported off the sites to Sellafield, which is essentially the sort of the holding pen. And as you can imagine, obviously there were large volumes of waste sort of at Sellafield awaiting a long term repository. So at present, the the government is basically exploring different siting options as to where we're going to actually build the geological repository. What are some of those options? If if we have a repository or when we have a repository in the UK, where is it likely to be? So as of 2023, there are sort of two areas of the country that are under consideration for the construction of geological repository, one of which is in Cumbria and one of which is near Lincolnshire. In terms of how far along these siting processes are, so in the UK, what we operate what's called sort of a volunteerist approach. So in order for a site to be considered, a community has a willing community has to basically form a partnership with essentially the, the siting people, the sort of the branch of the branch of government that is responsible for siting this this place. And it's a volunteerist approach, so it has to kind of have have full support from the local community. Both of these sort of siting processes are still relatively in their infancy. Again, I'm not involved in the siting process, so I'd be hesitant to say how far along they actually are. But in terms of, you know, some goalposts that have sort of been set, the roadmap that's been set out by by the government, it's, it's hoped that in the next sort of two to three decades, that there is you know, some serious progress made on, on construction and sort of getting the waste packages sort of ready to be disposed of properly. The entire process of, you know, basically the first spade in the ground to complete closure of the facility, estimates vary. It, it's likely to take, could take up to 100 years for this to happen. So the people that are working on this project now, uh, the people that are working, you know, in all areas of the siting process, whether that's at the fundamental chemistry of the materials right at the beginning, all the way down to, you know, the people that are liaising with the local communities and local partnerships. All of us, there are many of us that will see, very likely that none of us will see the actual closure of the facility. And I know that's that's quite important. I think, you know, what we're doing is starting a process that, you know, many of us won't see till the end, but it's important that, you know, us as our generation of scientists and engineers, we're the ones that will really be responsible for constructing a, a facility that really will last, you know, 100,000 years and keep nuclear waste safe from the environment. It is a large responsibility, so that's why it's important that we have appropriate funding and appropriate research and development, you know, really strong links between the end user and you know the academic and industrial sectors so for example the work some of the work we're doing at Sheffield now is looking at the viability of studying how waste forms that contain simulant nuclear waste will interact with different types of groundwater that might be that might be found at each of these sites so it's important to remember as well that the repository will be underground obviously forever but it will eventually basically decay away it, it will you know over a million years to two million years, you know, there will be seismic changes. Water will penetrate this facility eventually. So what we're trying to do essentially is demonstrate that by the time water starts to dissolve away the glass and dissolve away the ceramics that are used to encapsulate the nuclear waste, by the time that happens, the activity will be low enough such that it doesn't really matter anymore. 
And are there any facilities already in existence anywhere in the world? I mean, which countries are ahead of the game? So Finland is by far ahead of the game. So Finland has the Onkolo repository, which is the world's only operational deep geological repository that has a license to it to dispose of spent nuclear fuel. So the Finns are really leading the way in terms of in terms of geological repositories. The US has had problems citing its repository for a very long time. There was a very large project to basically scope out an area of land that was called Yucca Mountain. This was this this site of this site had decades of, of research poured into it and was ultimately cancelled. The French and Germans are kind of still in their citing process, but I believe the French have a site kind of decided. Again, the UK is is still in the citing process. But to give you a to give you a solid answer, yes, Finland is the only country that really is making strides. Um, and I believe they've just had their license accepted to start disposing of real spent nuclear fuel. I've been to the facility. I was lucky enough to go maybe four years ago now, and it really is a an extremely large and um, incredible infrastructure project. It really is. What innovations or kind of promising new technologies are searching for better ways to dispose of nuclear waste or improve the kind of designs that we have? So there are certain reactor types that have been proposed that could essentially take nuclear waste and sort of reburn it, essentially. We could do things like fabricate mixed oxide fuels that use sort of waste plutonium. I'm hesitant to use the term waste because there's still an argument as to whether plutonium is a resource or a waste. But, you know, there's always the opportunity to reuse these materials. But I think it's important to to remember that there is, there'll never be any kind of process or sort of any kind of reactor cycle that doesn't produce waste. They all produce waste. It's just what the chemical composition and physical properties of that waste are that will be, you know, sort of changed. We can use things like plutonium and americium to make uh, radioisotope thermal generators, which are generally referred to as space batteries. So for fueling long space missions where we need to keep components sort of warm and keep them powered, something like a plutonium radioisotope thermal generator, an RTG, would be a good use of of something like a, a waste plutonium product as, as a valuable resource for fueling certain types of long-term space missions. There, there, are, so there are many different sort of reactor concepts and designs that could take sort of spent fuel and burn them for longer. But it's important to remember there will always be waste at the end. And what we need to do is be confident that no matter what type of waste we produce, we have a safe and capable method to convert it and immobilise it into a stable waste form that could be disposed of in a geological setting. You've been listening to material scientist and engineer Lewis Blackburn talking about the future of nuclear waste. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. The latest issue of Science Focus is on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents or through your favourite app store. You can also visit us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.